Good afternoon and welcome. You are listening to The Man Charlie and Candidate, where two fully grown men act their shoe size and not their age. My name is G-Man and I'm sitting across from P-Boss here on this glorious, glorious day. What's happening, brah? Mate, I'm excited about this episode. Much, yeah. you know, as we've alluded to before, like the famous John Edward, we are crossing over Mm-mm. into another uh, genre penchant interest um, that forms a pillar, uh, essential pillar of this podcast, my cuz. Um, we're going to we're going to go into space, but before we go into space, son, we're going to go global. Um, my friend, we have international listeners. Yes, I knew it. I just knew it. Right. So I'm going. So I'm going to extend a uh, a large Manchildian hug out to our our brethren in New Zealand, oh, which cool. is quite quite oh, honestly just... one of my favourite places on the planet. We have listeners in Turkey. Mm-hmm. We have listeners in the US. We have listeners in Ireland. The UK, and we have one one soldier in Brazil, and I oh, love that. That's my kind of soldier. Doing well up in the favelas, I hope, and surviving best you can. Oh, oh lordy you lord. Say, you say favela, and I immediately think of some of those co-op levels in uh, Call of Duty, Modern <laughs> oh, Warfare <brother>. 2. The- <laughs> Glorious and glamorous oh, man you are. I love this. Thank you. Well, we've got thank an enormous you. show to get through today, so let's leap straight in. Um, this is for our, uh, our international listeners as well as all the listeners, and in fact, perhaps even our intergalactic listeners. So <laughs> I'd like to start the program off. This is going to give you a little bit of a flavor about what we're going to be talking about. Now, this is a quote from a man named Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey in 68, and he said this, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not, and both are equally terrifying. So there's a little bit of a flavor about what we could be discussing today. And P-Boss, what do you think about that? So clearly I've alluded to the fact that uh, Arthur C. Clarke was under the assumption that there may, in fact, be some sort of creatures, not of this world, in existence, in the universe. Absolutely. That idea of are we alone in the universe? And what has led us to this discussion today is the... Disclosure from the Pentagon, as as published in the New York Times, an admission that they have equipment, a technology that we haven't made that is not of this world. And of for those that with their ear to the track, this was uh, a few a few weeks ago, probably nay months ago now, and we've kind of just been sitting on this one because uh, it's it's exciting. Oh. It really is. It gets my juices flowing, dude. It really, really does in so many fashions. And um, what they released was um, a bunch of documents and also, most excitingly, in my opinion, is some footage taken from some fighter pilots of their onboard cameras where they've in fact captured and locked on to objects that they are incredibly surprised in seeing themselves. Now, these humans are incredibly used to seeing all sorts of stuff and keeping their training in looking for enemy aircraft or anomalies, in which case what they've done here is literally computer locked on using their onboard computers um, to these craft that are not flying the way that these humans would expect them to do so. Now, this is exciting, and I... 
recommend that anyone out there who's listening right now get onto the Google and type in UFOs released, declassified from the Pentagon, and you will see footage of this. And it's raw footage. It's not been doctored. And you can hear the uh, pilots themselves going, oh, my God, dude, I've locked onto it. It's real. It's incredible. Just baffling and fascinating and opens up the floodgate in which we're about to surf upon the torrential storm drain all the way home. Hopefully, we'll find out. Yes, much like Joe Satriani, we are hopefully going to be surfing with the aliens. Ah. Um, it is It is not as if this discussion um, or this disclosure has come through a, a small portal as well. So, That's right. Um, the, the New York Times don't necessarily mess about with stuff like this. And we're having the testimony of people who uh, have, have quite a high level of training. So, G-Man, I think it's pretty fair to say that we're just speculating today. Yeah. We're just trying to keep uh, – the invitation is to let's have a chat about it with an open mind. If you're the sort of person that is dismissive, no, nope, that can't be happening, please just press stop on whatever portal you are scrying us through at the moment and go do something else. Um, we don't need you. We don't want you. <laughs> um, the the capacity to keep an open mind is what this, what this podcast is about. So we're going to talk about these subjects in the same manner that we would talk about a movie or a video game um we're just trying to probe the radness g and so that that uh the you know the minimum entry requirement there is is a is an open mind and a curiosity yeah. at, at the least so um when we were designing this podcast we were sort of saying that we'd like to approach it as if two guys such as us i guess we do lean more towards the zealot um we're sitting down with someone else um at the bar stool um, I do remember a time in our locality, G, where we did, we oh, were allowed to go out wasn't to that bars. Great. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah. Oh, once upon a time, yeah. Am I pronouncing it properly? Bar, bar. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've forgotten, man. It's been too long. And, and so we're just sitting with with someone who is perhaps uh, less less opinionated on the subject as us, um, mm. and we're going to run through um, an idea of, I guess. What we're not doing is trying to provide a narrative to say that we're 100% certain. We're just tr- trying to provide a narrative to say, can't we be open to it? Like, yes. let's not be dismissive. So, G-Man, there's a couple of different viewpoints which I guess we'll begin our narrative with today. Yeah. Um, and that would be what, my friend? All right. Well, there is, in fact, a little bit of a yin and yang when it comes oh, to the notion oh. of whether there is, in fact, life out in the cosmos. And I'd really like to touch on one fellow who poses one side of the argument here, Frank Drake, who was divisive in the creation of the gold records that were sent, um, also helped uh, created by um, Carl Sagan, sent out on the, the Voyager great. programs, the greatest Carl Sagan you can ever imagine. Now, <laughs> Sagan's got an amazing video where he um, shows us and explains exactly what this equation is that Frank created. Now, the creation of this um, this equation of Frank takes in all of these factors that he poses, and he's thought upon this for years and years and years, giving us a very reasonable and, if not incredibly conservative, idea about how life should be out there. So, if you wouldn't mind me going through the Drake equation and giving you a little bit of a synopsis here. G-Man... 
I'm excited that you're going to take us through the list and the the equation. Um, and again, this is this is an equation that's asking people just to have an open mind and to say, could what could not we explore probability? Mm. And it's essentially asking the question: How many civilizations in our own galaxy are able to engage with interstellar communication who are also trying to do so? Indeed, that's a very good, exact, exact appraisal of what the Frank equation, the Drake equation, is all about. So let me I go like through. The, I like the Frank, the Frank equation because it's quite equation. frank. It is. He's not. He's not messing around with this one. So let me give, begin with the beginning. Um, the Please. rate of star formation is the first part of the equation, and as we know, stars are formed when gases collapse upon themselves becoming an enormous entity and exploding enormous. into um, a furnace, as we know a star being. Now, the, th- the, the part of the equation next to this is the fraction of those stars created that have planets. Yes. And there are plenty out there. Our sun soul, in fact, has many celestial bodies orbiting around it. Um, if you want to include Pluto, which I like to because Pluto is pretty rad, it's nine entities surrounding soul. And that's not including the planets uh, who have moons as well. So there are – go on, please. I did a little bit of uh, research on this. And to say the the initial question here is, my brother, are eight or nine planets typical? You know, yeah. are we, for, for example, with our sun, are we above average? Are we average? Are we, you know, below average? Um, so that's an that's an important question to ask. But you know, it would be safe to assume that at at the bare minimum, you know, being very conservative, that for every star there's a planet. Now, at this current time, it is estimated that there are. 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And that's important to say that Mm. the Drake equation is just curious about this galaxy. Um, But that's not to say that we can't reproduce it amongst the myriad other galaxies. Precisely. Um, And some estimates go up to 8 trillion. Yeah. 8 trillion. To give us an idea of just, I suppose, the vast size of what we're talking about, brother, the Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years wide. So, and to, to sort of give that some sort of a measurement, my brother, one light year is 9.46 trillion kilometers, <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, these are numbers that the human brain finds incredibly difficult to fathom. I don't even know how to write a trillion. It is not quantifiable to our feeble minds at all, at all. I see 100, and that's a lot. Whatever that is, you know, (laughs) it really is. But to put it into some sort of perspective, like when you look up at night, you see around about 1,000 to 2,000 stars. Absolutely. With the naked eye from your porch. So there's a little bit of something. It's really quite amazing, isn't it? Um, And as to 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 sorry, and I feel like just giving this as a background to where you're mm. going because it's good to carry this context in, man. That so to give it, let's put a time a travel time on it. So the the Voyager spacecraft is traveling away from the sun at just over seventeen k's an hour, right? So if the Voyager were to travel to the center of our gar- galaxy, brother, it would take. More than 450 million years. Yeah, dude. Right? This is, if it yeah. if it could if now let's buff it up a little bit and put a hyperdrive on it. Are you okay with that? <laughs> I'll go. 
let's put a hyperdrive on it. So let's buff it up and say that we travel at the speed of light, which obviously due to his theory of special re- re- relativity, Einstein's already gone, you can't do that, I'm sorry, that's no goal. Yeah. But let's say we could, it would still take over 26,000 years yeah. to arrive, my brother. Yeah. That's, that's how big we're talking about it. It's nuts, um, really, isn't it? That is, once again, the unfathomable nature of this whole thing. The cosmological constant Einstein's posing, um, really, if you take that into account, it's really quite sad because <laughs> we won't get there soon enough, yeah, wherever yeah. it is I feel we're going. Like, I feel like, you know, after after banging out those stats, brother, I feel like uh, – and I, we haven't even considered that potentially dark dark matter makes mm-hmm. up, you know, the majority, makes, makes 10 times the mass of our universe, um, and we don't even know what it is you know what i mean like That's i feel like after it? all these stats i'm going to be like mike myers and go and i've gone cross-eyed <laughs> yeah but oh, i'm I sorry brother but back no. but back to you take us back to dr drake but you Dumb. know i just i just feel like people need to understand no. just our galaxy alone the enormity eight trillion what is that even no i can't even work it man it's amazing jeff bezos knows <laughs> that number very well damn it jeff you've got all the money I know you do. do. Yeah, but Um, is he happy? I don't know if he's happy. He probably is really happy. Anyway, (laughs) back to the Drake. So we've just talked about the rate of star formation. Um, And it... And followed by that is the fraction of those stars that are formed that potentially have planets. And from all accounts and reports, the Sol, which is our very own sun, is a main sequence star of no real, real excellence. There's nothing anomalous about it. It's a regular star. And henceforth, the potential of a regular star having nine planets seems, well, that's the average, it seems, you know, which is really quite amazing. So to move on there is the number of Earth-like planets. Now, let's really talk about that, the Earth-like planets per planetary system. In all of our search for extraterrestrial life, we are looking for a planet that harbors life that sustains us, which seems a little bit irresponsible in some sort of fashion. There are creatures that live in hypothermic vents off the coast and underwater of Japan under the enormous pressure of wow. the entire ocean in sulfur vents, which by all rights shouldn't house or harbour any form of life, yet there it is, in fact, thriving completely. So I don't want to digress too far or get too far ahead of myself, but we're looking for Please. Earth-like planets in this instance with liquid water is pretty much what we're going to be looking for. Yeah, yeah. And liquid Fantastic. water is mostly hard to find out there. There's a lot of liquid, you know, there really is. And Europa is covered in liquid, we've discovered, but it's methane and that's not much yeah. good, to be honest with you. We are looking for a Goldilocks zone um, around not, a planet. It's not Uranus. Like, seriously. Yeah. No, we don't know. Um, so let's move on from there and go to the fraction of Earth-like planets that evolve life. Wow. So once again, that's at least, at most, realistically, about 1% of yeah. all celestial entities um, orbiting around any given star that yes. can potentially evolve life. Yeah. But furthermore on from that, the next part of the equation is the fraction of life-bearing planets that evolve intelligent life. Now, that is objective and subjective, what intelligence is. I'd be wandering around thinking that we are quite intelligent, but to uh, some sort of creature observing us, we may be not that intelligent at all. Cousin, we have a currently on this planet a uh, an island you know, made of plastic the size of Texas. So yeah. I, I question if we tick that box in terms of that category. 
um, yeah, we are we are constantly defecating where we consume. Yeah. So let's just say it's a sliding scale, right? Yeah. I mean, there's academic intelligence, emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence. You know, there's all sorts of intelligences, and well that said. doesn't really bleed into it. Doesn't having a having an island of plastic out there, um, <laughs> and from those planets, those potential life bearing planets that evolve intelligent life, we look at the fraction of intelligent species that have gotten to a point where they can actually develop communication technology. Now, the communication technology that we're talking about is very, very new to the human race. The Arecibo radio telescope is probably our most powerful earthly device, and that was created in the late 60s. So we've only been emitting or transmitting any sort of communication ability for the last 50 years. It's actually wow. a, not even a blip on the human history r- radar, my bro. Um, yes, brother. And finally, the last piece of the equation is the length of time technological civilizations can communicate. Now, as you said just now about the island of plastic the size of Texas floating in the oceans, um, civilizations, it seems, have an ability, as we've seen a, a Horrible, well, maybe a pertinent example would be the Roman Empire crumbled. So civilizations have the ability to destroy themselves. And human beings seem to be fast-tracking that one, like we're, uh, like it's going out of style. So that then accounts for the ability for species to be able to keep themselves alive long enough for their communication methods to be heard, to be received, and then potentially answered. So when we take all of these factors from the Drake equation into account, it boils down to something around about 10 at a very conservative and very very conservative uh, estimate there is the potential that in this galaxy, our own Milky Way, that there should be, according to this equation, 10 communicating civilizations, if we include ourselves as well. Now, listen here. The universe, as you said, the length and breadth of this whole thing, it seems ridiculous, doesn't it, that other life isn't out there or that we haven't seen it yet. So... That's where it sort of leads us to um, this really interesting other fella named Enrico Fermi. Um, Now, what do we know of Enrico Fermi, P-Boss? Would you fill the listeners in? You talked about the idea of the yin and the yang. And really what we're talking about is the opposition of two theories. So uh, on, on one hand, as you mentioned, you have the principle of mediocrity. So you had you had guys like Frank and Carl. I, I feel like I'm on first name I love basis. It. You, you sounded like it too. Hey, Frank, hey, Carl. Uh, you had these guys basically saying – Look, you know, we're nothing special. You know, we we form we form somewhere in the middle, as opposed to the other principle that you're talking about here with Mr. Enrico Fermi being the rare earth theory. The rare earth theorists sort of tend to, I think, be more reductive and and to say that lean more towards where it. You know, the quote that you mentioned at the start of the program. You know, the equally fear, fearful idea of going that's a, that's it in in this yeah. vast unfathomable largeness, <laughs> you know, we're it. Um, so, yeah, the Fermi, the Fermi paradox is, 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 is reductive and, and kind of saying, well, if they're here, then where are they? Yeah, exactly right. Now, 
What I wanted to mention when you when you talked about one of the last, um, and I feel like the Drake equation sort of does account for this. In the last coefficient, the, the the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that releases detectable signs of their existence into space, but there's also a, a sort of a intentionality about that. Mm. Um, so, I guess a really good example that I could bring up is the you know the Amish community on you know on Earth in terms of saying we we deliberately don't want to engage with technology, we deliberately don't want to reach out. Um, I also think about honestly, man, you know. It's not going to take me long to mention Star Trek here, but something like the Prime Directive Mm. in terms of saying, well, we're not going to influence a society until they reach a certain level of development. Yeah. So, for me, the the, the Fermi paradox does not get around the intentionality of a higher culture saying, uh, we don't want, we're here, but we don't want to present ourselves for whatever reason. Yeah. 100%, man. That is a fantastic point to bring to the table. Like, absolutely, truly. And, I mean, you can equate that to, I mean, you can boil humans in a lot of cases down to um, two sort of um, very, this is a, you know, black and white moral alignment here. But if you give an ant farm to two children, one each, one child may sit there and view and just look and watch them. Watch them feed the yeah, queen. Man. Watch the creatures move and walk about and do their thing and just live. The other may very well do the opposite, which is full involvement, meaning perhaps um, magnifying glasses out in the sun and a little bit yeah. of a destructive tendency. Yeah, so he's going to piss in the thing, Just yeah. very well may. You know? We all know that guy too. We uh, all know I, that kid. We've had one at least in <laughs> our lives. We really have. But there it yeah. is. And so, you know, when you think about that, the, the two options really there is uh, benevolent, uh, entity viewing us and that's what i perceive um some of these creatures to be the other angle would be the malevolent which would be the crushinators as you would see in roland emmerich's uh independence day where the only objective is destruction now you know it's hard to know and i I, I'd, i'd be inclined to think that if that were the case at this point any sort of visitors from anywhere else if they were malevolent well you know what we'd be done you know, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. unconvinced that if there's any sort of creature actually cruising around and wandering past, that you know, it feels like they may in fact be following the Star Trek directive and keeping us to ourselves until we kind of get there. Um, exactly, and I mean that's that's very much my thought. And yeah, we're going to we're going to further explore some of these ideas by um, exploring quite a well-known science fiction film, which we'll talk about momentarily. But I guess I do want to bookend the whole um, Drake versus Fermi idea with for us the Fermi paradox. It's not firm enough. It's it's a little <laughs> it's a little runny. It's a little wobbly. But <laughs> yeah, I Didn't guess have enough I fiber guess, in that paradox. <laughs> correct. It's like oh, you got paradox all everywhere. Um, you know, I just want to. I, I feel like it's it's a good point to lean to our good friend Carl again and and to state that you know absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Exactly, exactly right. That's that's the big one. That's the big takeaway here for anyone who's um, shutting their mind a little bit when it comes to this about well, where are those sort of scenario? Well, it's like. Dude, just because you can't see them directly right in front of your eyes doesn't 
really mean that that's not something that actually exists. If you were to tear yourself away from the bachelorette for five minutes and go outside and maybe look up, I guarantee if you lay on a picnic rug and you were comfy and you were just looking at the stars, maybe with someone that you love, who knows, but I guarantee within half an hour you will see something that's not a satellite, that's not a planet, that's not a plane, that's not a falling star that you can't quite understand. And that, my brother, is what it's all about. Where is the excitement for it all, really? Where's the lust for knowledge and trying to Thank understand you. it? It's the same as going on a plane. And I am I love oh. flying, my dude. And what gets me about it is if I'm anywhere but the window seat, I'm slightly disappointed. And if I I'm on that. the aisle and I see the window seat guy and what he does after takeoff is shut that window – Bro, when did the wonder and amazement of flying cease to impress you anymore? Yeah. You're in a yeah. steel tube flying through the sky. Now that, I know, my dude, I know. oh, come on. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> wonderful, isn't it? Like, yeah, it is. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, and you, you know, you've got Wi-Fi, you're in a steel tube flying, <laughs> you know, very fast, breathing farts. It is a miracle. Like, that. That's that's just, you know, absolutely cray-cray. Yeah. And, and fully accounting for physics. I mean, theoretically- in a way, a big steel tube shouldn't actually fly. But because we yeah. understand certain things about physics farts, and right? laminar farts. flow and thrust versus lift, oh, et cetera, et cetera, okay. we can, well, you know, that's all the farts. Yep. still applicable. Laminar flow yep. affects farts just as much as anything, my bro. Yep. So yep. there, I mean, wow, human beings, that is impressive. Yep. But I yep. don't think that that was the thing that sort of like um, snowballed, you know, potential interest from uh, the cosmos, from other creatures. There seems to have been a snowballing effect, and we'll get to why this is uh, very shortly, but shortly after the Second World War, there was a snowballing effect of technology, um, and then all of a sudden, a bunch of secrecy, and um, it all has to do, it all ties in really interestingly when Oppenheimer and Einstein realized that they could split the atom, and um, with destructive consequences, unfortunately. Now, I believe that that was when anyone in an international, uh, international, (laughs) in a cosmological community, (laughs) right, an intergalactic community paid attention because all of a sudden from this little pale blue dot, there's a little beep. And that was a bomb that we'd never had before. You know, it's really quite fascinating, isn't it? But I know, man. We'll get into that a little bit later. (laughs) You know, you know Johnson, who's on the observation portal number seven, who's been given the job of watching the third stone from the sun. In this, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, he's been sitting there, he's been sleeping, napping, lots of gaming. You know, all of a sudden that time period. He's got to go. Oh God! Pick up the phone and go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Got to pick up the phone and call head office and go. Ah, the kids have found the matches. (laughs) God damn it! Thought we hit them really well, but yeah, that's a very very interesting thing. The idea that all of a sudden we have the capability of destroying the planet. I, I would imagine, yeah, it sets off a few a few alarm bells on uh, international uh, clipboards, yeah? It really does, I think. International, I said it <laughs> so again. you did it, I know. <laughs> oh, we're so Earth-centric. Oh, Look at us God. here. And also, before you mentioned the, the Amish community and um, had, had to stipulate the, the one on Earth <laughs> as yes. opposed to the space Luddites. <laughs> Sorry. Somehow yeah. out there on floating carts, man. It's just insane. And I've got to say, man... This podcast is not reaching the Amish. We're not getting a lot of downloads from them. It's uh, 
little yeah, frustrating. We really to speak to our producer a little bit, don't we, about um, you know management of you yeah. know some a distribution man. Come on, yeah, yeah. I still can't remember that guy's name, man. He won't speak to me. It's getting a little annoying. I'm just, yeah, I know. We, yeah, he's I don't think he's a producer. Is all I'm saying. Now, buddy, when we start to move through this, um, yep. I know that I know that you tend to always bring up a name that I might even even have put in the wrong order here. But I know when we bounce from the Drake and the Fermi, you often yep. like to mention the work of, of, a, of an individual called Stephen Greer. Mm. Yeah, I do. Dr. Stephen Greer. He's quite a Doctor. fascinating fella. He really, really is. Um, and in 1993, Dr. Stephen Greer sacrificed a whole lot of his real-world work uh, to found what he called the Disclosure Project. Christ, um, I thought you were going to say he sacrificed a lot of animals. I was like, ah, oh, dude. I haven't finished his intro, bro. I didn't get yeah, to that. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, sorry. man. Oh, the baby goats. I feel for them. Oh, you know, I feel for Jesus. them. Um, yeah, so Dr. Stephen Greer, he put up his, his career as a, you know, on the line to create the Disclosure Project. Absolutely. With the objective of getting the human race nay, the governments, in particular the United States government, to disclose information that he believes that they have. And what is really wonderful about this, in 2001 uh, at the National Press Club, he had a roundtable press conference where he got witnesses and some of the most credible people putting their their careers on the line. Credible, Credible is, is where a great it's at. Word. So he got some very interesting cats who have been in the industry. In the industry, I mean mostly in the United States military, whether that be Air Force or otherwise, radar traffic controllers and pilots themselves and some very other interesting cats to go on the record explaining to the human race what they have seen and what they know. And Dude, it is mind-blowing. If you take really any is. of this seriously at all, this is an absolute open admission from the most credible sources about their experiences with either technology that can't be explained or um, the actual creatures themselves that these Absolutely. people have very detailed descriptions of. And if you don't take that sort of um, – a little bit seriously, or at least pick your interest, then I'm very surprised, you know, because this is something else. It really, really is, man. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and I, I I agree with you. It's it's the credibility of the people that are that are um, sort of test providing testimony. And, um, you know, when I say testimony, you know, these these accounts um, were vetted, you know, the, of, of all the reports that he gathered and all the data that he gathered, you know, he did a lot of work in sort of vetting and getting rid of the people that are just like, I was driving along in my F-150 and I That's looked right. up and there was space, Jesus. You know, it, um, the, the the accounts were, you know, cr were prosecuted pretty pretty carefully. So stood up to um, a lot of scrutiny just, you know, in terms of providing, a, you know, some sort of scientific data or insight. Um, you know, it was, it was – it's a very impressive body of work to look at. And again, not necessarily at that time or potentially even now – is there much to be gained from it? It's not the most impressive career move. No. I uh, mean, you, you stop regular work. And if you're working, you know, if you've got tenure perhaps with a university somewhere, then, man, your career is done. It's like, hey, that's the guy that believes in aliens. And, you know, and that's – 
That's going to be a recurring. That's going to be a recurring theme, my brother. Just yes. while it comes to me, you know, as yes, we explore really topics is. over this time, the removal of academics from tenure when they question yeah. the the status quo. Yes. Um, and that and that also, I know that um, while we're sort of listing a couple of names, I, I, I think of a guy like Bob Lazar as well, who's yes. whose life was you know pretty much ruined for 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 a good twenty years. Um, and and I look at I look at his impact in sort of telling the world, hey, um, I've got this I've got this unique element. Um, uh, Muscovium, and he called that out years and years before mm, the element. Mm. You know, obviously he was stating that this was not from you know terrestrial, uh, not not from the yes. suburb, um, and you know, years, decades <laughs> before it was actually added to the periodic table. So it's an established you know element. Yes, but now. it was added. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, if that's, that's not some isn't it? And form of vindication, I don't know what is. Mm. Yeah, well, and and he's a good one to mention. That guy suffered, brother. There wasn't, Dude, and that's you know, exactly what I'm about to mention. It's like, you know, vindicated, you know, like uh, vilified is what I meant to say um, yeah. by the greater scientific community. But the thing about that dude is, man, is he never abated once. He never caved in and Didn't he always maintained the damn story, which yeah. that's what picks my interest most of all. I mean, someone else might have succumbed to the pressure of certain agencies or even the media exposure saying, this crazy guy believes in this. Um, but he's like, well, th- that's what it is. I, I'm not going to change my story because you it, it challenges you. I'm going to maintain giving you the information that I have. And, and and let's not let's not forget he really he really didn't even want to come out with it. He didn't want to come forward with it. It was it was the journalist, uh, you know, what was his name, George Knapp. Yes, well um, done. That sort of you know. Um, of Skinwalker Ranch fame that yeah. sort of came out and pulled him out and said, "You need to this 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 needs to be told. This story yeah. needs to be told." And when we talk about a story not changing again, he's he's been prosecuted pretty hard. Like mm. it's not been it's not been just average Joe asking him questions and probing him for want of a better term about. Yeah. Um, what he saw. There's been some pretty, pretty convincing minds that have sort of cross-examined him. And yeah, brother. You know the story hasn't changed. He hasn't folded, um, and it, it, you know, it, it, he hasn't made a one dime out of it. Yeah, and I think that's the thing too. Like if they don't actually. Um, take you out quietly, like if you don't actually you have a car crash or you've just automatically uh, suffered a heart attack or something, they will make your life so uncomfortable in so yeah. many different fashions, you know, Absolutely. that most people I think, I, I would think that would be dozens, if not hundreds more folk who've come forth, who've just gone, oh, Jesus, bugger it, they're screwing me on my taxes and they're threatening my family. They've all yeah. gone... You know, they've succumbed to it and they've said, well, maybe, you know, maybe I made half of it up, but Bob Lazar did not one bit. Well, I like that you mentioned him, man, because the guy that I'd like to drop ever so quickly, um, he wrote a New York Times bestseller book um, by the name of The Day After Roswell. And this is uh, Philip J. Corso wrote this book. And this is one of the most incredible, incredible reads that I think anyone can ever have. Even if you can't keep your mind open for the topics in which he does. It's just a fascinating read anyway. But what he did was, um, Philip J. Corso was uh, part of the research and development team for a very interesting and very particular incident that happened in 1947. Oh, and yes, that go I'm on. talking about, of course, it's the 
in its titular the day after Roswell, the day after the yeah. Roswell the crash, and I'm using inverted <laughs> commas, the incident in uh, New Roswell, New Mexico, where yeah. they claim that uh, a spacecraft was in had in fact crash landed with entities. Yeah. Not of this Earth, extraterrestrial yeah. EBEs we call them, extra yes. uh, extraterrestrial entities, right? Um, in the craft, one apparently was alive. Now Philip J. Corso wrote this book on his deathbed, and this is a year before he died. He was quite ill for some time, but he managed to write this before he died, and yeah. he said he claimed. And he was in charge of the research and development department of the CIA or the FBI or whichever agency sort of took this <laughs> over in directly um, reverse engineering this technology. So yeah. the technology that he claimed that he got from this craft is phenomenal. And this was the snowballing effect of technology that I was talking about before is he claims that microprocessors, fiber optics, semiconductors – all of yeah. these and and some and Kevlar and some other poly alloys and, and things that we just use commonly today were directly yeah. from this craft. That's and right. My goodness, that is yeah. so fascinating to me, my man. It's so yeah. fascinating, and yeah. you know, it's at the height of or the beginning of the Cold War when everyone was reshuffling uh, Nazi scientists around, and we can talk about Project <laughs> Paperclip in another in another episode, I'm sure. Yes, yes, but yes, that's the remarkable nature of this man is the timing of it all, and so because of the Cold War, as you know, it all became very, very secret. They wouldn't yes. want to discuss anything in case it was either this technology was plucked from uh, the United States laboratories by a KGB spy or the other way around. So yeah. all of a sudden we've got this realm of secrecy. So Philip J. Corso does his absolute best to break through that. And I recommend if you haven't out there, please get onto the day after Roswell and give it a little bit of a crack because it's a hell of a read. Tell you now. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I will keep reminding people as we're having this discussion, uh, we, we, we said that you know, the most common conservative estimate for the amount of stars in our galaxy alone is 400 billion. So, I mean, to to sort of, again, allude back, if the average amount of planets is, you know, eight, you know, go, go, go do the mathematics on this. Um, so, obviously, to be just completely, completely dismissive and just sort of say that that no one um, developed before us. You know, you and I haven't even alluded to, you know, the age of, 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 the, uh, of the galaxy relative to, you know, the age of this planet. Yeah. Um, I guess the reason I mention that is you think about those advances in the last 50 years. I mean, think about it, nay, the advances in the last 15 Yes. Like, brother, I remember making phone calls on a little thing called a Nokia 3210, oh. um, which which would double quite well as if I was ever challenged in combat as a <laughs> yeah. as a pretty serious melee weapon, a bludgeoning tool. <laughs> <laughs> Like Good old-fashioned really, yeah. bludgeoning. Dude, you're absolutely right. That's a really good, uh, you know, um, thing to bring up, isn't it? Like- and, 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 you know, we are now, we are now, you know, you and I were WhatsApping each other beforehand in a, in yeah. a little personal 
uh, Palm Portal that ha- has more technology in it than than sent you know or yeah. didn't uh, yeah. sent the original guys to the moon. Um, well, dude, can, can I? I just mate. want to go into that ever so quickly because you're absolutely right. And what we know is that the universe um, from the Big Bang theory is 13.8 billion years old. This leaves Earth at roughly 4.9 billion years old now there's a lot of millions in a billion there's a lot of them and if you take into (laughs) consideration that somewhere out in the galaxy is a planet an earth-like planet that is almost identical to our very own home um but they are in fact one million which is not much in the scheme of the timeline of the universe but one million years ahead of us Oh, what is capable? I have no idea. But and to see that snowballing effect between the Nokia and you know the phone that I currently have in my hand, I could That's literally ridiculous. launch rockets with this thing if I was in 1969. It is more yeah. powerful than all of those beasts altogether. And this, my bro, is 50 years ago. So. Yes. I mean, if you're just taking this sort of notion, wow, man, that's sort of mind-blowing what the others might in fact have. So, well, brother, we, we're, we're keeping it kind of we're keeping it kind of local here in terms of the Milky Way. Yes, um, <clears throat> but at this point, it's you know worth bringing up that that you know Hubble estimates that there is between one hundred, one hundred and two hundred billion galaxies, and that to me again is conservative. Again, absolutely. We're 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 trying to lean on. You know, we're trying oh. to. I I I've I've looked at some really really um, conclusive literature, um, or or evidence, quote unquote, evidence based or scientific literature that is suggesting that that might be as much as eight hundred billion. Mm. That's um, nuts. Like that's you know, once again we talk about that unfathomable, that unfathomable number, right? That absolutely, I, I, I can't quantify that in my mind. Like you show me a trillion things, or you show me a billion things, and I tell you, I couldn't tell you which one is which. Absolutely, like, it's absolutely, absolutely baffling. And, and I mean, we're even just to just while we're bouncing these ideas around our tiny little, you know, primate skulls, you've got, uh, you know, like like we said at the start of this program, our galaxy, it's average. It's not. It's not big. It's not small. You know, um, the the closest galaxy, which is about you know two point five million light years away, is the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah. That one's two hundred and fifty thousand light years across. Yeah. We're a hundred. That one's two hundred and fifty. So I mean, isn't it? Who knows and about the age of elements of that one? What's going on, yeah. brother? The thing that I know about the Andromeda galaxy too is it's um apparently it's kind of hungry for other galaxies, which is really quite profound. And what it's doing is it's actually coming towards the Milky Way and within the the required amount of time for it to get here, we will inevitably be enveloped by the Andromeda galaxy and be yep. part of those dudes. And all of a sudden we've got all sorts of stuff that's going to take place. And yeah. um, it's almost a shame in a way that you can't endeavor to um, teleport yourself to billion years into the future and see what the Andromeda galaxy getting close to the Milky Way galaxy would look like. Absolutely. Oh, what a cathedral you would see. A stellar yes. cathedral in the night sky. What an absolute stunning idea. Um, no, brother. But we're digressing a little bit and um, <laughs> As back we do. to um, <laughs> we will do this. Um, and there was a little, there's a little organization or a little mandate that um, 
that went down shortly after all of this too. And in fact, two initiatives um, by uh, Truman um, set the tone for this secrecy that yes. then uh, came forth. And we've got a little project. There's one project, and they named it Project Blue Book. Um, <laughs> and this is not to be trifled with. This is a direct – can you tell the listeners perhaps a little bit about Project Blue Book? Look, <clears throat> my, my curiosity um, is piqued by the fact that Project Blue Book existed and its mandate – and you can look, you know, you can look in these documents at the time of its inception. Its mandate was to determine if extraterrestrial intelligence and life forms were a risk to our society. Okay, now that is a full stop right there. Because, full stop. Yes, because that, to me and to you and to any mildly intelligent person, is an open admission that this is something that deserves our attention. Well, it's not saying, gee, fresh. It's not saying you and your little scientist mates go out and work out if they exist. It's saying go out and assess the threat. That's right. Henceforth, an admission of existence. Now that is wonderful. <laughs> and I mean, like uh, going down that wormhole of looking at declassified information. Um, even looking at, you know, you alluded to earlier, mentioned the Roswell. Story. Yeah. Even looking how that changed in twenty four hours, mm. um, and and I guess that makes me, you know, that makes me think of another uh, shady government body. But having a look and going back and seeing that the newspapers were literally saying a space object fell out of the sky, a spaceship fell and crashed, and then by the next day, there was Team Project Blue Book doing mm -hmm. their f thing, saying. No, it was just swamp farts. Yeah. Oh no, it was a weather balloon. Oh, actually, it was some sort of. Yeah, exactly right, man. And there is um, there's a couple of um, uh, photos that accompany, sort of like the initial reports. And there's a couple of fellas standing there holding what looks to be aluminium foil or some sort of wreckage. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a tough one. So to answer your question, you know, yes. Project. Blue Book was was a government mandated organisation um, led by a man called J. Allen Hynek, um, and the the idea was we you know the government put this body together and said we need you to go out and debunk. This is probably the first time in my reading back when I was a youngster that I came across the idea of the difference between a sceptic and a debunker. Yeah. Um, and I feel like clarifying that now. Please, right. Please. The, the, these days, um, people seem to think that a sceptic is a debunker when in actual fact a sceptic is just someone who has critical the, – the, the processes of critical thinking and critical reflection and insight. So someone that's not necessarily um, – you know, on either side of the fence, someone who will sit in the middle and look at what is occurring. So, um, yeah, Project Blue Book sent out by the government, make sure that when, you know, space aliens crash in the middle of a little town, you go and tell everyone that it was just, you know, swamp farts. Exactly, man. Exactly. And what would you say is the most uh, interesting point about a man like J. Allen Hynek? I would say for me the most interesting thing is here is a scientist who – 
it would be fair to say when he began, probably was not a sceptic. He probably was leaning more towards being a debunker. Um, by the end of his career, a man who was, you know, whose whose very job was to go out and deny and to look through cases and debunk, by the end of it, had seen so much with a with a you know about ten percent that he just could not explain. Mm. Brother, you know, just switching camps to actually coming across and saying, no, 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 they exist. I've seen enough and I can't do this anymore. Cuz. Yeah. No, that's insane, isn't it, really? I mean, that that deserves to be really sort of – you know, listen to when it comes to someone who whose directive is to really pull it apart and to to take a big poop on all of it. But when that person can't, you know, that leads somewhere very interesting, really, doesn't or, it? Or, or more importantly, my brother, when that person gets to a point where they won't, it's just like, you know what, I just, in, in, in all fairness, I, I can't do this. And I remember seeing, um, reading some discussions with him and he was saying, look, as a scientist, I just had to, from the, from the position of just pure science, I couldn't um, stay in that extreme polar position anymore. I needed to be able to say, well, I've seen enough to at least say that we need to look further. Yeah. And there it is, man. That's that's the point really, isn't it? Like that's the, uh, the human curiosity is, should in fact take over at any given point. And um, this is the problem that we have, I think, as anyone that's mildly interested. I mean, the, the internet is absolutely saturated in hokey rubbish. People are practicing <laughs> their, you know, their visual after effects skills to create these videos. And absolutely. most of them, my dude, 99.9% of these are in fact complete fallacies. And it's actually insulting. And what pisses me off about that is that it muddies the water so even if you are seeking some level of truth or some level of authenticity you can't find it because you're just yeah. saturated with absolute rubbish it soils so, the it soils the brand somewhat doesn't it, it well it, it really makes does it it makes it hard to just sit in the middle as we're asking and saying can't we just cr- critically reflect and say listen man yeah in, 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 is it not is it not possible and and yeah. when when we sort of move to that idea uh, you know you and I haven't even really mentioned the some of the more popular ideas coming from our friends in quantum physics about you know multiple realities a, mul- mm. a multiverse um, again the the naysayers would always throw throw up um, the tyranny of distance as to the reason why. I mean, for how many years, G Fresh, did you watch all these shows and that was brought up as, oh, they're just too far away. And, and, and mm. you know, again, we talked about it at the start of the show. It's going to take, you know, 26, you know, thousand years at light speed just to get to the centre of our yeah. galaxy from where we are. And we're not even right out on the edge. Um but this this becomes a really interesting concept when our physicist friends come in and talk about well you know bending of space time of 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 wormholes of yeah. you know grabbing a piece of paper that's a meter long and putting two holes in it and saying yeah it's a meter apart but if I bend it and yeah. and and fold it and place it together now there's no there's no gap they're not next um, to each other it's the same space you know and yeah. there's a there's a ton of ton of interesting. Um, interesting thinkers and you know quantum physicists who were saying look this is we now it's now openly accepted that it's very likely that the idea of a multiverse so 
brother, once you once you once you introduce, and we'll talk about this in later, but once you introduce, I suppose, interdimensionality into this, it's. I mean, wow! You can't you can't just say it's too far to drive no, anymore. That's right. It's irrefutable then too, because if you sort of fully, and and string theory is a really interesting thing to discuss at one point too. Perhaps not for this day, but that allows for so many multiverses lined up next to each other like a loaf of bread. Next to us is this universe and this universe, you know. But in in essence, if that were the absolute case, then it all exists at the same time everywhere at once it's just it's exhausting and it's beautiful to think of but if we're gonna sort of boil it down to something a little bit um i don't know more quantifiable in one's mind to potentially uh, like a layman-y sort of dude what what is it man what is it gonna take for the human <laughs> race to actually know unequivocally not just speculate on, not just have hypotheses and feel like they're yeah. they're holding water. Wow, that's grounded. That seems really good. What is it going to take to unequivocally know? Well, I mean, this this brings us to the next part of our discussion in terms of saying, well, I guess it's going to be well. There it is, right there. You know, that's that's the uh, that's the craft that's landed in the middle of a major city, or yeah. that's the alien standing in front of me, or you know, that's the multi-dimensional being standing next to the prime so, minister of wherever. <laughs> yeah, so it's direct presence. We're talking I, like I guess, yeah. We're talking like someone coming down and saying, "Hello, this is us." I mean, full disclosure. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. But that 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 leads me to ask you, my brother. I mean, what would it be like for you? I mean, honestly, we we have talked about this over a great many years of our friendship. But you know, um, you know, time to poop or get off the pot. What do you? What would it be like if you got up tomorrow? You know, and there was Valiant Thor standing there talking into a camera. Indeed. Um- well, wow, that's a big question, man. Um, thankfully, I've had time to think about it and I have the answer. It's Ooh. it's really quite a terrifying prospect in so many ways. And I'm not okay. talking necessarily terrified by the potential of the creature, whatever that might be. I'm not terrified by that. What I'm terrified of is the human response. Um, and oh, in a wow. day after tomorrow, when the creatures land in Central Park, the first thing that the goddamn <laughs> humans do is open fire upon them. Now, why, why, why would you do that? Not only yeah. do you not understand the intentions, but clearly, if the creature has landed here, your little PP shooters that you call a, a Glock 9 aren't going to do a goddamn thing against this and what sort of what it's more political like if if i come from like a as you said earlier like a unification like a like a star trekian idea like what is the intent behind here like from these people clearly these creatures have not blasted us out of the the cosmos automatically these creatures have landed with a purpose which would lead me to believe there's a communication but Think about like how COVID has shut this planet down. A virus has shut this planet down completely. And we're still in a mode of not being quite very sure whether we're going to completely recover. What if that were an alien race that popped in to say hello? Um, do you just get up and go to work the next day? Do you like what do you, what is the next thing that you do? As a person. Well, look, I, I, I just always default to know what, you know, to whatever happens, you know, I just, well, I better not go to work, like whatever happens, brother. 
You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. I, so that's, I feel that's that academic with me. But I, I, I guess this is where we're going to potentially uh, examine a couple of different viewpoints because I understand on one part of on one part of the, the the thing that is being in a human meat suit is that we have we fear change because um, you know change is different and anything different you know is detectable in the lower parts of our brain as potentially it could kill us you know yeah and maybe fear exactly yeah so you know I, I I really relate to I get what you're saying but I do get Star Trekian with it I do think. We we sort of we alluded to earlier to the the amount of change that's occurred in fifty years, you know, because like when I started playing video games, you know, it was it was a little stick, uh, batting a little square, quote unquote, ball across the screen, boop, 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 <laughs> yeah. you know, and that was and that was epic. As I speak, you and I can make an arrangement to turn on our consoles tonight and, you know, be be kilometres apart and and hear each other and speak and look at look with, you know, high graphic fidelity video games that, you know, honestly, bros, we, we probably just would not have imagined. Like yeah. I'm old I'm an old enough man now that I that I still part of me is looking at games I'm playing going, Holy crap. You yeah, know? man. Yeah, um, well precisely. You know, um, I, I I remember I remember bad dudes versus the dragon ninja. You know, I remember thinking that that was just that <laughs> was, yes, brother. I just oh. reckon I remember when that was the tits. I, I digress a little bit. I, you know, my point is, look how far we've come. So I guess in order to either potentially traverse the distances that we've talked about, now be that you know physically engaging multiple warp drives and or opening wormholes or whatever the bloody hell it is, I feel like you're going to have to have had a fair bit of time to enable that technology. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, completely. I feel like in order to have that time, you have to rise to the next level as a society, i.e. pull your head out of your ass and not blow each other up. Which is part of what the Drake equation talks about. Yeah. Is to say that, okay, well, if you've done all these things and found a planet that, you know, isn't isn't like Uranus, gassy and moist, uh, if it's able to sustain life, um, and you're basically able to live long enough to create these things, to move through stone ages, to move boom, 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 you know, through the Bronze Age into a space where eventually, dude, you're opening wormholes and traveling, you know, from Andromeda to potentially here. I just think a major thing is co, co, you know, is civilization. Yeah. So I guess the point to my seemingly pointless tangent is that if you've got to traverse that and rise I don't know if you still want to turn up and be malevolent. Why would you bother? Like, why would you bother to rock up to that little ant farm you've been potentially observing for some time and just go, yeah, I'm done, squash. Yeah, yeah. Like, it seems like a waste of time. And yeah. Likewise, if the universe is empty, that seems like an awful waste of space. So, like, yeah. <laughs> like it really, really does. There's a <laughs> really lot out does, there. It? <laughs> it really, yeah. really does. Yeah, it's like we, we moved to this developing suburb really early and just bought up big and then went, <laughs> That's oh, right. Well, yeah, precisely. no one else here. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, look, I, you know, and, and again, this leads me to another important question, um, G Fresh. Yeah. I mean, do you think that science fiction has been um, unusually influenced by horror? That's a 
very good point, man. Yeah, because, I mean, if you count science fiction films that relate to, um, like, almost directly, I'm not just talking about just random Star Wars-y and any, any of that sort of stuff, but, like, as I said, The Day After Tomorrow and anything oh. that is sort of grounded in reality where that is a situation that we've got to deal with. Independence um, Day. It, yes, brother. Like, War of the Worlds. Like, most of them come from, like, you are scared of the creatures that come from the sky. They are in it for your death. You're actually food and you're in the way. And it's a real problem. And so, yeah, Hollywood has been divisive uh, in, in the bringing down of any sort of, I don't know, free thinking and open mindedness. Uh, when it comes to intergalactic civilizations. Like- I agree with you. I, I feel like, I mean, you know, you and I are obviously geeks for cinema and in particular genres like sci-fi and horror and all my earliest interactions with, with early sci-fi, they really just were like a kind of a monster horror movie with a with a sci-fi skin. It was really all, all about, um, you know, trying to, trying to kill the big bad. And in this case, the big bad was like some, you know, weird clunky silver robot. It just wasn't a werewolf. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it wasn't, that's right. Um, the thing from so, outer space, you know, the war of the worlds. They came from Mars. They wanted, you know. Like, 100%. Yeah. I, like the vast majority of science fiction is not um, – is not overly optimistic about these things that we're talking about. Um, and it leads me to sort of, you know, ask the question, and I'm sorry to slip a reality hat on in the oh, middle of a fantasy genre. I hate but you in hats. I'm sorry. It's how does how does the drooling alien, um, you know, <laughs> with the long claws and the multiple mouths, how does it actually build technology, use its yeah. hands um, to actually control or build technology or equipment to fly across the universe. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I mean, you're referring directly to the Xenomorph. Uh, I guess I am, regard, sort of, yeah. You know, or or any of them, though. Or any yeah. of them. Like, it. You think about you think about so many of these these creatures, these aliens. They hardly ever have opposable thumbs, man. Yeah. Well, it's 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 arguable to say that the only reason that I'm able to do a podcast with you right now, speaking into these wonderful microphones and gesticulating, um, is because we've got opposable thumbs. I well, mean, yes, r- but look, there's also statement, but it really it really but that's the technology that we are used to. That's what we have in our minds. Like, consider like you talked about Bob Lazar earlier and discovering long before it was even added to the periodic table element 115, for instance. And like, look, man, we are lucky enough to be on this planet with an abundance of iron, an abundance of oxygen, an abundance of the things that are useful to us. But were they designed to be useful for us or did we find a way to purpose them? That's what human beings have done best is survive and evolve and adapt. So if you take a whole other species, a whole other creature that has an element that we might not even know about that provides incredible, incredible stable energy and they can harness it with ease somehow, they seem biologically adept at just doing this, then profound and seemingly magical things are possible all the way through that. We adapted to this environment. It wasn't built wow. for us. We're incredible at this. So if you consider the xenomorph might have all of a sudden, well, there's, 
We've not seen a xenomorph fly a spaceship at all <laughs> at one point, no, by the way. They just but, turn up and, you know, mess up other people's spaceships. Well, that's right. But what if, for <laughs> instance, there was, there was another element. There was something else that provided these people, these creatures, with safe, sustainable something. It was useful yes. to them because they worked out how to use it. Then yep. all of a sudden, put that into the idea of they got to that point, um, you know, maybe point six of Drake's equation is the ability to communicate um, outside of their, their, their planetary body. That might have been so radically simple for them. Like while we were trying to figure out standing yes. up, these yep. dudes were automatically hovering. So, you know, the universe is plentiful. plentiful. So that's, that's my excuse right there. No, I, we I, don't I, know. I, yeah, a hundred percent, and 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 you know, that leads me to think about another another quote from Arthur C. Clarke of you know any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Beautiful so, quote, love it. You know what a what a what a remarkable individual and a, and a, and a way to think about the world. But I feel like I don't know. I feel like you're almost trying to reassign or sell me malevolence. But um, <laughs> it's it's something yeah. that it's something That's that I'm factor. willing. It's something that I'm willing to consider that's in in the Neapolitan ice cream. You know what I mean? Oh. But much like my my Federation of Planets idea, I do think you would have morality. And I do think that there is often a correlation between to go to the levels of technology that we're talking about. I do believe there would have to be some sort of uh, morality that is required for the societal – cooperational civility that is required to be the physics engine of that but i i could be completely wrong like you know we've seen plenty of movies where it's you know it's a it's a it's a crazy you know slave race that you know does all of that and and i mean once again if you go to the whole zachariah sitchin idea which is another conversation for another day we are we are exactly that we're that we're that slave race but um yeah i i just i just feel like i want to lean towards the federation of planets and maybe that's just me you know helping myself to feel better i guess what we're doing today with this podcast this discussion this this bar stool banter is we're speculating and that's all we're asking it's fun to speculate it's fun to throw some ideas in there um it's amazing how many people that i that i sort of uh reach oppositional points of view with or arguments that haven't read a book about this stuff. That's the thing, it's, dude. It's one of those things where we're just saying, read a few books, have a look at the ideas, perhaps even the sheer numbers of the size of the of the galaxy and the numbers that we're talking about might stimulate the idea of going, okay, you know, we're not we're not sitting here trying to be like the full-on dudes from ancient aliens, you know. Going, oh, man. isn't it possible that aliens visited this planet? You know, and remember the other dude? I love the other guy. Okay, like, that, that was a good Von Daniken, and I'll get to him. No, the other guy, you know, he's like, oh, I think aliens did come to this planet. You know, and then you got poor Hancock <laughs> yeah. who's there going, this is not what I signed up for. Where's my wife, Sanfa? But anyway, <laughs> yeah. what, what I'm saying is we're not kind of extremely taking a position. We're saying that, look, let's talk about this. Let's not shut the book. And you mentioned, you know, the scary, the malevolence. For me, yes. that is why I've selected a little film today to have a look at. Um, as Wonderful. we're having this discussion, G Fresh. Now, obviously, you you know the title of the film, but I mean, 
what's what's your earliest memory of interacting with the idea of not being alone you know as a as a planet yeah well that's a very good question uh because it's it's, it's, that's a hard one to answer. I suppose I might have seen um, E.T. rather young, yep. which sort of like got my juices flowing, I suppose. But um, strangely, and it's not via association because of the comment at all, but Star Wars, right, yeah. is like the first thing that I'd ever seen where galactic travel was even a thing. But I didn't even register it then, man. But I suppose I'm, I'm going to say E.T. because yes. it actually hit – it was more. It was. It was more human. <laughs> what yes. a funny thing to say in this uh, this occasion, because it gave you the human story. Yeah, more. Real, you know, it more, wasn't this space more, opera. It was actually like, yes. wow, if this was actually a thing. It was. So more, I'm going to say ET. It was more relatable in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I reckon so. So yeah, easily. And so. I often wonder to myself, like, is the fact that you and I were were, were guys that were born on a staple diet. Um, of, you know, brought up on a staple diet of science fiction, is that. You know, does that sort of lean us to towards having, I guess, some acceptance of possibilities? But I mean, I just, I just grew up being, you know, raised by Tom Baker, and I just thought that that's what yeah. you did. You cruised around with scarves, <laughs> yeah. and you know, when you when people threatened you, you offered them jelly babies. You know, <laughs> um, that's right. Davros enjoyed his jelly babies, man. <laughs> yes, that's right. A god, he needed them. But um, I agree with you, um, and. Don't even let don't even get me started on on Star Wars, but Star Wars just to, to to take your point was, you know the the hyper space travel was just kind of accepted and almost pedestrian. You know it was just yeah oh, the hyperdrive's not it working. You know <laughs> it was never explored or described, was it? You didn't really. They told me they fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> they never really told you how it all worked and how human beings themselves came to being would, part of this whole galactic community. It's just assumed you were just on that for we the ride. are. You know um, exactly. So I guess the other big one for me, and, and to answer my own question, my earliest memories, I think, in terms of a big medium, would be the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, brother. And here we are. And here we are. And I guess, look, aside from my, you know, probably every couple of episodes, I'm just going to have a spielgasm because I love <laughs> I love the way that this man tells stories and I love the way a that- Spiel, spiel. <laughs> yes, I love the way that this guy puts together film. Um, you know, this is- this is just another example of, I mean, what a body of work, what a career this man had. But I guess the first thing that I really enjoy about this uh, this movie, Bruz, is it it is optimistic. It is we have a recurring theme throughout this film, my Bruz, of a childlike approach, a childlike mentality. I just can't think of perhaps, with the exception of Star Trek. Um, Another big movie that just has so much accepted optimism in it about yeah. the subjects yes. that we're talking about, cousin. Yes, to me it is. What a beautiful, what a beautiful notion. Yes, and yeah, it, it is an optimistic thing, isn't it? it I mean, it really is. You count other other films in the same genre of the same era. We're not doing that. No. Not even close. Not at all. You know, a very real approach, a very human approach as well. Absolutely, brother. So look, just to just to pull it apart a little bit, this movie was released six months after Star Wars. Um, 
And as you you and I were speculating earlier, I wonder how it would have reframed how we look at ourselves in the cosmos or this whole discussion. Um, it was originally a script. Um, it started as a script called Watch the Skies, um, brother, talking about some of the subjects that we've alluded to today. So um, to, it was originally a script about government cover-ups, cover um, Watergate, and um, an agent working for Project Blue Book, as we, as we mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, and uh, look, it wasn't, it wasn't until... It wasn't until it got into the hands of Spielberg and his penmanship that it became optimistic. Um, yeah. So it yeah. could have been a could have been a very different production, my brother. Yeah, absolutely right, man. That's a that's a very interesting film to bring up into this sort of circumstance. Because what year was that? Was that seventy seven? Seventy seven, because six seventy seven, six months after Star Wars, and and yeah. uh, after Star Wars. Okay, that's right, brother. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I wonder if this came yeah. first. If what 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 a different viewpoint it might have put on our place in the in the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting, man, isn't it? But what you do is you raise um, what I found as a as, as a youth because I saw this one as a youth, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's the it was the third kind, right? So I remember when I absolutely. first saw this film, what I thought I was watching, I felt like I'd cheated a little bit and had <laughs> uh, snuck ahead. And, in fact, was watching the third <laughs> film because surely there's a Close Encounters of the first kind oh, wow. and then a second kind, uh, you know, respectively. Yeah. So what I did learn is that there are different gradients in Close Encounters. Absolutely. And I, that I love what was really intriguing. I love the fact that you felt like you were watching Jedi before Star Wars. You're like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was watching uh, Last Crusade long before Raiders, man. <laughs> you know, exactly right. Oh, look, so if if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to I'd like to share with our listeners oh, what what I understand to be the the the, the first three kinds of close encounters. Please do, and I and um, I may and- I may chime in with a relevant example from the movie. Here we go. Oh, could you? Yeah. Okay. Well, look, that'd just be great. Bebos, just great. All right. So the gradient of close encounters, um, and it's often referred to um, from one of the fellas, uh, Heineck's scale. But what I understood is that Heineck didn't really come up with this scale until after the third of the encounters. But we'll discuss that in a second. So Please. we'll loosely call this Heineck scale yeah. for uh, close Can encounters. Can we call it the so, Heineck maneuver? I believe we can, Great. sir. Yeah. I believe we can. Yeah. The first Heineck maneuver, um, close encounter of the first kind, yes. is a visual sighting yeah. of an unidentified flying object. Yep. Full stop. Yep. That's what it is. That's the first kind. You've had a close encounter. You've seen something that you don't quite – and let it be known that UFO literally, of course, is unidentified flying objects. Yes. Many things can be this. Yeah. You might not know what it is. Yes. It's an unidentified. It might be a bird. Yeah. It might be a pizza that someone's thrown from their balcony. Correct. It, it you don't know what it is. It would be it's a unidentified. St- a stick that your brother's thrown and you're about to get knocked out and your final That's thoughts right. are, I'm not sure what that is. But- <laughs> That's right. All I know is it's... It's unidentified, it's flying, and it's definitely an object. Because <laughs> it So hurt. that's the first. <laughs> now, it really did. Um, this immediately reminds me of the fantastic truck scene in, uh, in, in Close Encounters where Dreyfus is sitting in his truck. Um, his character, you know, Roy, we'll call him. It sounds, sounds rude, just Dreyfus. It's Mr. – God damn it, it's Mr. Dreyfus. Um, 
Roy is sitting in the trunk and he's kind of looking down. So he's he's basically chasing his his first encounter. So he's seen things, but brother, when he's sitting down looking at the map and a car comes up in the rear of in, and this is all from the point of view of like um, reverse point of view. So we're looking at Roy as if the camera's on the bonnet looking back. Yeah, and of course they just gently with no sound rise up behind him into the air and float over the car. Um, Ah. And it's all much like, brother, much like what he's done so many times. For example, much like Jaws, where we don't see the shark. We don't see the aliens in this so much. It's a tiny percentage of the film. It's all done from the reaction of the actor. And, of course, as the lights float forward and across, he looks up and there we see the, you know, a classic example of an encounter of the first kind. He's looking at something. Yeah. It's, cl- yeah. it's clearly not from Kansas, Toto. Outstanding. Well, that's, that's, that's a perfect example of a, f- a close encounter of the first it's kind. so well done, my brother. I love brother. that. So beautiful. All right. Done. Well, let's, um, let's have a quick squiz at what a close encounter of the second kind Please. is, because that's the thing. Please. Um, it's a UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. So this could be reference to uh, the function of Roy's truck, for instance, when the lights shut off and the radio starts doing its weird sort of thing. Correct. It could be animals reacting. It could be a physiological effect, and it's often described as um, from abductees, and we'll discuss that another time, is uh, paralysis or a, f- a feeling of heat or discomfort. Yes. yes, And sometimes a trace, like a physical trace on the ground, which would be Absolutely. evidence of an arrival, which would be a burn mark in the ground or a crop circle, yes. for instance, which is also for another program. Yes. So. That, my bro, is evidence. Um, uh, evidence is the second kind. Absolutely, brother. And and that immediately makes me think about um, uh, Roy's face burn. So half of his face is gone all <laughs> That's right. exceptionally yeah. sunburnt and red. It's just played so well. And also perhaps, and I won't say the abduction scene because, a- again, abduction implies malevolence, but when, when, the, when Barry finally exits the farmhouse and, and goes off with the aliens, you know, again, Spielberg creates this, this. he messes with your mind, all the vacuum cleaners turn on and the toys, right, you know, yeah. switch on themselves. And it's um, he's using objects to sort of create an emotion um, from, yeah. from us, the audience. Um, but, uh, yeah, really, really fantastically done. Um, yeah, so we've got the sunburn, we've got the we've got the equipment going crazy, brother. You know, the second yeah. kind is well, rife. that's it, isn't it? Yep. And now take us a titular. Take us to the turd. Third kind. Yeah, please. Indeed, I I can't help myself, and I will. Yeah. The titular third, the close encounter of the third kind, um, by definition, is a UFO encounter in which an animated entity is yes. present. Yes. So that can include humanoids. Robots or humans who yeah. seem to be occupants or pilots of a UFO. Yes, yes, and I love that. And I love look. I love that. I love that the the, the humanoids, the robots are in there. Um, so this to me is probably best best demonstrated in the film in the third act, um, the final act when they're um, you know they're up on the uh, on the on the Devil's Knoll and you know that yeah, whole final yeah. act, which incidentally, brother. 
upon a rewatch, it's an it the th- again. Sorry about the spielgasm, but it's virtually an opera, son. That last scene, that last important scene, there's very little dialogue. And so much of it is just done through music and light and sound yeah. and actors' reactions. Anyway, I, I digress. Because to those that haven't seen that, like that final scene is when the uh, the craft actually la- and major spoiler alerts, the yes. craft lands. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So when the craft lands, the uh, the method of communication that the humans deem to set up is a light and sound show, I suppose. Yes, You'd call man. it a show. Yes, cool. But what right. happens is that the aliens respond in 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 turn, and so the human race sends out this little chimes, the massive speakers from planet Earth. Then. We should just Off we should have done French it. We should, horn. Yeah, we should. You and <laughs> yeah, I should the, just do it. We'll do. We'll do that for our Patreon members. We'll do the. That's we'll, a really great idea. Yeah, we'll, we'll enact the whole scene. <laughs> yeah, what, <laughs> they're just gonna love. Wouldn't that just yeah, make you want to throw five bucks down? <laughs> <laughs> but that's a very good evaluation of it, man. I love. Yeah, it is. In fact, when you take strip away all dialogue and most visuals, that you know you can get what's happening via audio almost alone, brother. You know, amazing. in fact, you have two. Cultures communicating through light, through sound, and through essentially mathematics. You know, within each within each plane. But getting back to the third kind, obviously, in that moment we see we see animated entities. So we see the the, the larger big dude with the great long arms. We see the smaller little dudes. But in a cut scene, which I'll talk to talk to later. Um, there is there is the um, there is the presence of additional uh, humans aside from the ones that are returning, but we'll talk about that one possibly in a moment. G-Man, for a good while, it seemed that those three um, were were good enough, but um, there's a fourth kind, my brother, dude, and that. This is what I'm most interested in because that's Please. where I felt it stopped. I thought it was up to the third, yep. up to close encounters yep. of the third. Stopped kind, at Jedi. Stopped at Jedi, and many would argue <laughs> and, that's where it should have. They should have stopped at Last Crusade as well. Oh, and look what happened, yeah, you know? Don't, yes, yeah. but yes. So the Hylix scale continues. Yes, and this is where it gets very profound. Um, and, and please tell. Walk me through it. I've gone through the first three. Well, this is tell me- this is where we start to get the influences of the Greerisms. We get to we get the influences of of, of Jacques Vallée. Um, you know, obviously frame, famous, uh, world famous French ufologist. And so essentially a, a close encounter of the fourth kind is a UFO event in which a human is, are you ready for the A word, abducted oh, by a UFO ah, or is. its occupants. Um, so as you mentioned, it wasn't it wasn't sort of in in the in the original Heimlich maneuver, um, but it it has been added to. And in this point, our good French ufologist Jacques Vallée argued to include cases when witnesses experienced a transformation of their sense of reality, mm-hmm. um, so as to also include non-abduction cases where absurd, hallucinatory, or dream-like events are associated with UFO encounters. So I'll come back to that in a moment, but the interesting part of uh, how this relates to close encounters is it's only alluded to, my brother. Uh, 
So, like I said, Barry is not abducted, the young child. Barry happily goes with the aliens. Um, Yeah. It's further emphasised this whole lack of malicious intent in the fact that even in this final scene that we're talking about, when the aliens leave, Barry's crying. He's actually sad that they're going. Um, there, there, there's kind of reference to you know our our World War Two pilots who are returning, so perhaps we could we could we could gauge the abduction concept there. However, it's really important to note important to note that they look fine; they're not dishevelled and they haven't aged. So yeah. the, the whole the whole fourth kind thing is really not a big part of. Um, this movie, which I think is it's a, it's an interesting idea, but because especially with the Jacques Vallée amendment, we're kind of looking at also issues of consciousness. And I know mm. often you've spoken about a certain individual called Edgar Mitchell. Yes, yes, I have, and I, I will speak of him ad infinitum if allowed. <laughs> Please, it's your show. Uh, it's our right? show. Oh, you got a podcast, God. brother. Oh, it's man, the Edgar Mitchell I... show. Now, Edgar Mitchell is one of my favorite human beings of all time. Like, in all honesty, my brother, he he just honestly takes the cake. Absolutely. Um, he was the sixth man to walk upon the moon in on Apollo 14 mission. Yes. Uh, this man. Prior to this was a test pilot, an engineer, an avionics genius. This guy knows his stuff. <laughs> and so he then, of course, wanted to add to his accolades and become an, an astronaut. And so he took himself off to the moon, <laughs> as, as you do as if you, you do. can, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and off he went. And um, he, he literally did what we all did in between 69 and 72, and we'll discuss why we haven't been back to the moon since uh, 72 at another point that's in time. another episode. Because that's a very exciting. But Edgar Mitchell had the most profound uh, experience when he was off-world. He was looking at the planet on which we have all lived. Every human, as far as we know, have lived for our entire lives and we'll will do so up until we we reach this unification where we can explore. But what he did was he had this really profound experience uh, in when he was entering uh, re-entering Earth's atmosphere, and it, they call it the Kundalini experience. Uh, and the Kundalini experience to um, anyone that's followed any train of mindfulness is is an experience that you can in fact fabricate. Maybe if you are astute enough with one's spirit and mind, it takes a bit of and work. Yeah, since it takes a little bit of work. Maybe leaving the Earth's atmosphere is one of those bits. shortcut. But it's a total shortcut. It's a, it's a, kundal- you know, it's it's a, a little, Kundalini hack. Oh, dude, what a hack! And to, to the Kundalini, um, the, the folk that aren't exposed with this, it's it's a it's a sense of oneness. It's a collective. It's an understanding. It's a feeling of connectedness with everything it's not just you and the plants or you and your mum it's you and it all whether that be the cosmos or whatever deity you want to give it name love it it's really quite amazing and so he had this experience when he was off world 
And there aren't that many astronauts that have been off-world, let alone astronauts that have been off-world and have experienced this. And so when he got back, having this sense of, oh my God, he went on the record and said, if every politician and every CEO on the planet were to see the Earth from the position of which I've seen it, there would be no wars, there would be no hunger, there would be an understanding because you've seen it all. And so what he did was he took it incredibly seriously. And he got back and he started a a little thing of his own called the Noetic Institute in which they study some very fascinating uh, instances of – it's not necessarily paranormal, but it's psychological, philosophical, yes. and it's the study of the mind over many things. So really focuses on quite holistic things, which is very profound in my mind for someone who is, uh, you know, one of the alumni. He is someone who has a huge amount of credibility in the scientific and engineering world, yet he decided that he'd endeavor to explore Meditation. Absolutely. And some very wholesome, wholesome things. And so he took that incredibly seriously. And he is an enormous proponent in saying that absolutely unequivocally, without a doubt, we have had contact and are in contact and will be in contact with creatures from another world. Now, he didn't go into any more detail about which worlds we're talking about. But nonetheless, as we were talking with the Stephen Greer and Disclosure Project section of the program, uh, putting all of your professional, uh, you know, credibility on the line. Absolutely, this is sort of damning yourself. You're damning yourself if you do this. And he's gone and done it. Not only did he do it, but he took it so seriously. He institutionalized it with the Noetic Institute. It's fascinating. Edgar Mitchell, if you don't know much about him, please. This guy is phenomenal, and he will, he will be your favorite dude. We've got uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, but Edgar Mitchell, he's our guy, 100%. Absolutely, cuz. Uh, thank you for that. Like, he's definitely a seeker of greater implications, my man. And and uh, that institute, it was it was interesting where they landed. It they they very much landed on you know Tibetan mindfulness practices. So it it's just it just blows me away that a dude that goes that that far away out into out into space comes back saying no, the true the true art form is going inward. We need to go yes. in. We need to go within. Um, you know, and and so became reasonably adept, is my understanding, in you know Tibetan yogic uh, Buddhist practices. So, um, what a what a trippy idea! It's a hell of a turnaround, isn't it? Also worth noting, and we'll probably unpack it a lot more when we do the Moon Show, is that. You know, he he himself joins a, a number of astronauts who, you know, sort of came out with the exception of Neil Armstrong, obviously. But um, I reckon they had him uh, had his family locked in basements or something like that, or he a was non child, of course, non disclosure agreements. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there's just literally a whole bunch of them that are like, yeah, man, we saw stuff. We were not alone out there. Um, yeah. And and obviously, yeah, we'll unpack it more. But the the accepted understanding that you know that that the famous we need to change the communication channel because there's people here, um, Houston. We're not alone. Houston instructs the guy, and it's in it's in the history books as in you know switching the channel over. Um, we need to speak on a different radio channel about what the hell is going on and what we need to do. 
Buzz Aldrin as well. You know, Buzz Aldrin, you you Google that dude and he is just sitting there saying, this is what I saw and it wasn't from, yeah. this, wasn't from this world. So, um, yeah, well well put, my dude. And look, we can we can go a further rung up the ladder, my bros, um, from the from the fifth to the to the sixth, which, gosh, man, this is where things get a little cray cray for me. And obviously, the movie has nothing, no reference point here, but a close encounter of the sixth kind. Say that after a few beers. Um, is obviously the creation of a human slash alien hybrid, either by sexual yeah. reproduction or by artificial scientific methods. I guess again, we referenced the man earlier. This is where this is where you might be leaning more towards a Zachariah Sitchin camp and and to jump on that whole Anunnaki sort of Babylonian idea, which I yeah. don't necessarily because again we had a whole bunch of more modern day contemporary scholars going. Zach, you, you got the language a bit wrong. That's not what the translations are. But who cares? That's fine. We're just speculating, pontificating, and you know, having a mug of mead. But um, dude, what a what a what a amazing fact that even the the sliding scale has you know added a few notches on the rungs, brother. Well, it goes deeper then, doesn't it? Like it, that's where it gets infinitely fascinating you know yeah. and especially the sixth one i mean that's sort of um the sixth and the fifth when we're talking about um abductions and we're talking about um uh, reproductivity whether Ugh. that be as you say artificial or sexual and there's a very famous abduction case and uh we can do a whole other program about it but um oh, i don't think i'd be too um, scared Betty and Barney Hill are the oh, cliched yes. folk who have some really phenomenal and very fascinating stories to tell about their time on an alien spacecraft. Yes. And that was sort of like the first, and this is where um, Project Blue Book sort of comes into its own, really, when it comes down to that. And that's where these guys, whoever they might be, if they're Majestic 12 or they're dudes that are hanging out with just the Truman in the, in the boardroom, like, okay, so we've had... U.S. citizens who claim to have been abducted and ripped from this planet and put into oh. a spacecraft. Oh. Yes. Can we work out whether that's malevolent or benevolent, please? Oh, because oh. that's really critical. But <laughs> what I wanted to say on that uh, is that every culture, and we're going to do a program um, very soon about um, – Sky gods, because yes. this is fascinating to me, and this bleeds into ancient alien sort of ideas. And have we been visited before? Isn't and, it possible? Um, many of you listening right now are going like, "Who's going to say chariots of the gods?" and oh. and Eric and von Daniken, and I absolutely am because it's fascinating. But that sort of factor, when there's interaction between us as Humble humans just trying to get home after working nine to five to watch The Bachelorette and then have our fish fingers and go to bed. You know, I mean, I don't know what you guys do, but this is what we do, right? So when any sort of change or any factor changes that, such as abduction by aliens, then, you know, perhaps someone needs to take that a little bit seriously. But when it comes to the whole notion of that, um, that close encounter of the sixth kind that you're referring to... Oh. Every single oh. theological culture 
on this planet who is not polytheistic, but even the polytheists have the same sort of thing. There is interaction from whatever is above oh, with whatever is right here. Absolutely. So my example would be Zeus from the Greek. Yes. Um, pantheon of gods, the king of gods, mm. came down hidden as a swan to have his way with the human females. Yes. And even our very sort of generic and very safe sort of Christian sort of theological um, leanings, um, the angels, in fact, came down and did exactly just that. So there is a whole sort of theme of Are you going to say the word? Above. You know you want to say the word. You want to no, say No, I'm not going to say Nephilim. No, I'm not going to say it. I will not. I will not say Nephilim on this program. Very, very good. But this is it. It's the sky gods um, and the interaction that has been, you know, prolific through 2,000 years of Christianity and religions beyond that even. Well, so, yeah. I, look, that's how, that's how I frame this whole discussion, right? I, I mainly focus on – I mainly focus on the statistics the statistical probability. Statistical. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Very passionate. The statistical probability <laughs> of the pure numbers that we've just even just nudged on today. Um, yeah. You know, we've talked about the sheer numbers of just uh, celestial bodies that could support life in the Milky Way galaxy alone. Uh, and then, And then I move to, yeah, like I said, I find the historical representation of of our interaction with with quote unquote gods. I find all that really interesting too. You throw in yeah. a you throw in a Joseph Campbell sort of uh, idea of you know the hero with a thousand faces of sort of going here's a guy that sort of almost went from an anthropological philosophical sort of idea of looking at many cultures around the world and going there's such a such a similarity of origin stories. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where I hang around with such fascination. A, statistical probability, you know, and then B, yes. um, and then B sort of going, well, all of these cultures have mentioned these things throughout history. There's, there's incredible consistencies and similarities. Again, all just coming back to just sit on the bar stool, have some mead, you know, don't touch my nuts, they're mine, but just help <laughs> me, you know, just entertain, kick the cerebral football around with me that there's a possibility and that it's more fun than talking about, I don't know, some of those reality shows you talked about. Oh, The Bachelorette. Nothing's more fun than that. <laughs> I mean, really. I'd rather talk about how how long a light year is. That's just me. <laughs> Um, yeah, but look, buddy, I feel like we do need to start to nudge this Titanic, you know, towards the curb. Um, yeah, let's do it. You know, and and so I guess to bring an idea back to uh, back to the film is to say that the fact that Dreyfus's character is so childlike is is perhaps why spoilers we accept that he gets on the spaceship and he leaves. He leaves his family. Yeah. Yeah. Um because what choice is he left with? Like how could he how could he get that far, you know, and not and and the film in such a beautiful way ends as a thought experiment. It ends going, "Oh, I wonder what happens to wonder what happens to Roy." Um and sort of, you know, talking about how 
talking about how J. Allen Heinkick may Heinkick. <laughs> how J. Allen Heinick makes a cameo in this final scene, brother. You know, yeah. Spielberg it shows an understanding, doesn't it? Just brings it all together. And o- yeah. obviously, uh, Francis Truffaut playing the French scientist is an absolute homage to Jacques Vallée. I mean, Spielberg mentions that. But I guess I'd, I'd, I like to wind up by sort of saying that, you know, we, we, we do have three different versions of this movie. Such a strange thing. Um, what do you mean? Well, what happened was a good question. I'm glad you asked, Jim. Oh, thank you very much. This Spielberg essentially felt rushed to release his, his original um, product sort of younger in his career, and he didn't really have a great insight into studi- quote-unquote studio finance problems. So he begrudgingly released the film, and he wasn't happy with the visuals, and he actually felt like he didn't release his final cut. He felt like there was too much of Richard Dreyfus, i.e. Roy, kind of going cray-cray. So too many scenes with assembling the mashed potatoes and running out into the garbage <laughs> yeah. and making, you know, which, which you know, I-, I thought were pretty rad. Anywho, so about three... Three years later, he managed to convince the studio to give him some money to, to, to do a recut. But, of course, the producers were like, well, you know, blood for blood, we'll give you the money, but you've got to show us the, the spaceship. So there was a second release years later, which had much more of an explore, exploration of the scenes at the start, G-Fresh. So, yeah, the, yeah. so the returning planes and the big ship in the desert – you know, because he really felt he wanted more footage of that, and he and he did up some more of the special effects. However, the cost was he had he has to show Roy or Dreyfus, you know, Roy getting onto the onto the ship, and it never sat really well with him. He felt like that should have been the intellectual property of the audience's imagination. Yeah, okay. Much like Jaws, as you just mentioned earlier. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Let us stew in our own juices. Let us simmer. Yeah. Um, as we've said in our in one of our previous discussions, sometimes it's what you don't see that's either just as titillating right. or arousing or scary, whatever it is. So, brother, you know, years later, he released a director's cut and um, – rightly so in my opinion um removed the the scene of roy going onto the spaceship and uh, in doing so again let it be a um, science speculation ending let people walking out chewing their popcorn going wow man i i i i wonder well i like that man science speculation more than science fiction or science fact. Yes. Very nice. Very nice prospect. There. Absolutely, really brother. Like that. Well and, said. And look, well said. Um, later on in his career, he looked at another script called Night Skies, which is a sci-fi horror. But again, he canned it because in the final stages of, of, of one of the re-edits and the recuts, he had the idea of looking at the, the alien because there's one little alien that comes down and hangs out. And he sort of looked at it and thought, well, I wonder what it would be like for that little alien to stay. And that Mm. became E.T. And so Spielberg has absolutely admitted, brother, that, look, E.T. is the sequel. He wanted to- Yeah. 
He, Dude, for for those two properties to be in the same universe, for those to absolutely, be absolutely, bros, an actuality shit. Well, if you look at it, if you look at it, cousin, it's like an update. Like it's like you're downloading an update for a game. So the the mothership or the smaller spaceship that comes back for ET, it, it, it's similar in tone to the big mothership in in, in Close Encounters. Um, Dude, yeah. Okay, so, well, that's sort of. Blown my noodle just a little bit. Isn't it interesting, and, um, brother? It just it yeah, could have I really been like that. And once again, I would posit to you, Cuzzy, that that's the only, maybe the only other one that's kind of science speculation and pretty yeah. positive, yeah. you know. And I guess I want to finish this discussion with an idea that we actually we've actually kicked around before, but not. Not for a long time. Another option, brother, with these sightings of all these people, these beings, is it us? Could it be us? Hmm. That's a beautiful prospect. And like, I really just want to leave that as a speculation. I'm not going to even talk upon that any further because I've got a lot of things to say upon that. And, no, you do. You know, if I do, I will I will talk for another three hours, uh, P-Boss, <laughs> you know, and I really will. I want to leave it hanging because I'd love people to hang up this podcast and go, what does he mean, us? Oh, crap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that idea, man. I love that notion. That's a definite beauty to sink on and think about. If you can, just spend a little bit of time being Mulder. Let's just Mulder our heads off. Let's not. Absolutely. We don't have to default to Scully all the time, do we? No, we don't. And that feels like a gift in a way from us to our listeners is just to Stay open-minded. It's that simple. And once you sort of endeavor to do any sort of investigation of your own, it's uh, it opens up a wormhole. It opens up a, an Alice falling down the rabbit hole. Yes. Uh, it just are actually gets are, really exciting. Are you suggesting that Alice, is, Alice actually fell down a wormhole? I can't confirm Jesus, or deny dude. that, but I'm starting to think. All right. I'm starting to think. That's enough. That's I'm, exciting. I'm freaking out. All right, everyone. So am I. Thank you so much, and we'll uh, we'll see you again soon. Yeah, it's been amazing. Peace out, and we'll catch you in the next episode of the Manchildian Candidate. Ta. Cheers. <laughs>